This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised. Alert Medic 1 response. Ken, Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic 1 podcast. I think we should be good this time. Yeah. yeah, cool. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining again. So uh, I said Josh and Ken this paper. Ken's not going to be able to join us today, but uh, this popped into my email actually through an NIH. Uh, so I follow the NIH, like their funding. Um, there's like an email list you can join it and they send you stuff like relevant research that has been funded either in part or in full by the NIH. And uh, this was an interesting article that just got published, I believe, in Circulation. Yeah, Circulation um, by Idris et al. About, and, and you guys can read the title for yourself. Um, but I found it interesting, uh, of course, you know, with our conversation with Lindsay in the past. Uh, well, I guess when we published this, this will be last week that we talked to uh, Lindsay. And we definitely had some key points about cardiac arrest and out of hospital cardiac arrest is obviously a huge point that we're still trying to work on and improve outcomes. So I thought that this was relevant. Um, so uh, before we get into it, Josh, did you have any other like, you know, startup comments, anything like that? No, uh, just that this uh, definitely has some connections to our episode last week, like you said, Moose, um, definitely in uh, placement of hands in your BVM approach. Uh, it talks about that as being a possible thing that is going on with this study. Um, and it also uh, highlights just, you know, the, the constant evolution of medicine, uh, the constant evolution, especially of out-of-hospital out of cardiac arrest care, uh, which we hope to get into more coming up soon, uh, talking about that and how maybe you guys can uh, change your approach and maybe things that you're already doing, things you aren't doing. Uh, this is one of those things to take a look at and figure out, like, how can we change our individual care before it's a system wide? Because this is, I think this paper speaks more to an individual provider um, below the protocol level. You know, this is this is something we can affect change tomorrow. You know, tomorrow, whenever that is that you listen to this. Um, Absolutely. And uh, at the end, we'll talk about another study that might be you might start seeing in the social media webs about. Um, some interesting application of epinephrine during cardiac arrest. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit since there's not a whole lot out there right now, but just pique your interest and see if you guys are following along with what's going on in evidence-based medicine too. Yeah, and, and before we go any further, I just want to say we haven't really done a, uh, I don't know, it would be cool to do like a journal club or something for the podcast. I just had that idea, but we haven't really done a paper review like I'm about to do. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I'll stress that... Um, Oh, I don't know if that little background noise just came up, but um, I, I can't stress enough that, you know, one individual paper is never enough to, you know, change practice by itself, right? We make uh, changes in 
uh, medical protocol and like the standard in medicine after there's a preponderance of evidence, right? Sure, there have certainly been papers that have um, had such remarkable uh, results that we do tend to move our uh, practice. But overall, I, I don't want us to... I don't want to learn one to push this narrative of one paper sh should be the, 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 um, what should I say the standard for changing practice without significant, um, investigation and critique of the paper. Um, I'll t get into this a little bit later, but, uh, I, I, as I go through my journey in higher education, I'm learning that a paper is only as strong as its limitation section. Uh, so we'll go through the limitations here uh, because I think that's a great surrogate for how critical the writers were of the of their own work. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, and uh, what I can't stress enough is although you know we're, we're going to go through the different sections uh, of this paper, but I encourage everyone to not only read the paper yourself, but then ask a mentor what they thought of the paper you know, a, a physician or, you know, a senior investigator or you know, even a senior paramedic that knows, um, uh, you know, research methodology. Because like I said, this is a journey that I'm going through myself and I don't know what I don't know. Uh, and I'd, we certainly look forward to getting feedback from our listeners uh, to see, you know, if we, you know, what your thoughts were on our interpretation. So uh, with that being said, uh, you know, let's scroll up here a little bit and you'll see some sporadic highlighting here. I didn't get a chance to highlight everything. And Josh, stop me if I'm uh, if you have any questions or anything. OK, because I'm not able to see you because I'm looking at the paper. All right. All right. So uh, back valve mask ventilation survival from out of hospital cardiac uh, arrest, a multicenter study. So as we get into like the introduction, uh, the paper basically talks about the the, uh, you know, the severity of cardiac arrest and how many folks, uh, how many cardiac arrests occur. Uh, what was interesting is they mentioned that a lot of uh, research has gone into looking at best practices for like the rate, the depth and like the, the fraction, right? So the proportion of time spent uh, doing compressions versus not doing compressions. Uh, but they state that not a lot of work has been done regarding ventilations. And uh, I was talking to Josh a little bit before we started recording uh, with the high performance CPR and everything. We, uh, My gut tells me that I've seen a trend towards focusing on compressions and sometimes folks don't really concentrate on the ventilations part. So it was interesting. And that was one of the things that really pointed me towards the paper uh, and wanting to talk about it. Um, the, they cite some references and state that chest compressions alone do not generate sufficient tidal volume for adequate, adequate gas exchange, uh, which uh, it, of course I think is kind of intuitive, uh, but interesting. And how they recorded this, uh, how they recorded the effectiveness of ventilations were not the traditional capnography route, right? So we talked in our last episode about, you know, utilizing capnography, uh, even with your back valve mask um, ventilations. And of course, as the gold standard of using waveform capnography for uh, uh, not only uh, monitoring of advanced airways, but ensuring initial placement and continuous placement of uh, uh, of your advanced airway as a primary metric and as a secondary metric, measuring the your patient's underlying physiology, and uh, as a great surrogate for uh, uh, their uh, gas exchange. So w we know the importance of capnography. They did not use that as the tool, uh, measurement. They instead used uh, thoracic bioimpedance. Uh, so basically, and there's a great 
example, uh, they, they go into how that actually works, but basically it's, it's a change in the electrical ohms that is a, that has been proven to serve as a, uh, a one to not really a one to one. I'll say there's a proportional, uh, a proportional relationship between the change in that metric and how much air is going into the patient's lungs. Uh, basically, uh, think about it as a metric of chest expansion, how well you're causing chest rise with your bag valve ventilations. And if you guys remember last week, you know, uh, Lindsay really stressed the, uh, the two person technique, right? So having one person create that CE, uh, that double CE really, and then the, uh, have another person actually, uh, you know, compress the bag to ensure that we have not only a good seal, but uh, a good uh, tidal volume going in. Or also the uh, thumbs down jaw. Oh, yeah. Yep. Under, uh, so thumbs down over the top of the BVM going towards the jaw, and then the rest of your fingers wrapped around the bottom of the jaw, almost like a jaw thrust-looking uh, hand placement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Going to the methods section, so uh, the big thing I, I want to stress here is this is not a primary study. So a lot of times what happens is there'll be a larger um, study going on. And I'm hold on, let me close this email so that I'm not getting these notifications. Uh, what'll happen is researchers will t kind of piggyback off of a large study that's already going on and then use that data and study a specific part of it or use that entire data set in a different way. It's uh, That's called a secondary analysis. Um, so the uh, studies, the, the data set that they were using was called the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium Rock um, Trial of Continuous Compressions versus Standard CPR in Patients with Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. Uh, so uh, and one of the things I'm, I might try to do is look at um, just to see, uh, because one of the biggest uh, interesting things I found here is, and we're going to look at the, uh, and that's the patient population. So uh, if you're watching this, uh, you'll see the table and it'll be kind of redundant. But for the folks that are listening, I want to make sure I, I read out the actual numbers and why uh, certain patients were excluded. Just in general, uh, when you're investigating a patient population for a specific uh, 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 a study marker, uh, you want to make sure that your your data set, the population that you're studying is fit for the study or the question that you're trying to ask. If you have a bad data set, if you have a bad patient population, your results are going to be skewed and then you're going to be making decisions off of results that aren't based in sound science. So let's go through this real quick. Um, what was the inclusion criteria for the patients that were uh, looked at in this study? For that original trial, the ROC C trial that I mentioned, there was 15,250 patients enrolled. They uh, split this, and the, that study basically looked at uh, the utility of continuous chest compressions versus the 30 to 2 that a lot of us have learned. Uh, so half of those patients, about 8,060 patients, were assigned to the continuous chest compression arm. The purpose of this study that we're reviewing today was to look at the 30 to 2 arm, the ventilations in that 30 to 2 arm. So, of course, the continuous chest compression folks are going to be ruled out. Like I said, I do want to go look at that paper because it will be interesting to see those outcomes in reference to this uh, larger uh, paper. So, from real those quick, 50, uh, yeah, go ahead. 
least the rock, the resuscitation outcomes consortium mm-hmm. is so much paper as it's a group uh, through the Ohio- Oregon Health and Sciences Science University. Oh, um, thanks. And they What's have, the specific study that they're doing then? Uh, well, so the study is the study. They are they have ten sites that are part of it. I'm, if you read up a little bit farther, it was uh, in this one: Birmingham, King County, Pittsburgh, uh, British Columbia, and, that's, and then two more because there were six sites in this. It says. Um, so yeah, uh, secondary analysis of clinical and continuing cardiac monitor data from six sites: Birmingham, British Columbia, Dallas, Fort Worth, King County, Ottawa, and Pittsburgh. Yeah, but so the primary all... it says here participating in the thirty to two arm of the resuscitation outcomes consortium clinical triple C clinical trial, the trial yeah. of continuous compressions. So that's the primary study because then it goes into the IRB approvals, and then this is a secondary analysis of that study. Okay. Right. Um. Because it's not up on our website anymore. I'll say that. Uh, hold on, studies. Uh, they did part, by the way. Did it what? The ones that uh, Pragmatic Airways. Oh, oh nice. Anyway. It's not on their studies right now. I don't know. I was looking at that one. Yeah, it might because it because I don't know if you can see my screen, but it says here like the uh, rock to. This triple C clinical trial, and that's that was the that was this part that I was reading. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure it is a clinical trial. I, I mean, I know it's a consortium, like you were describing, but I think they're uh, the specific trial that they're doing is this one, I believe. I could be wrong, and our listeners could certainly send us stuff too. Um. Yeah, because it says here two rock sites did not participate in the rock. Uh, triple C study and two sites used only Zol defibrillators, which were excluded from our study because of the defibrillator recordings do not include a usable bioimpedance signal. So I'm pretty sure this is a trial. A like there is a primary trial. Like very certain. I believe. Sorry, did that answer your thing? No, uh we're good. Okay. All right. So okay. Um so uh where was I? So yeah, 15,250 patients were enrolled in that original trial uh, at those six participating sites that Josh mentioned. 8,060 were in that uh, continuous chest compression arm, right? So an arm is just a, uh, a a term for how study subjects are separated. In the arm that we are uh, concerned with with this paper, there was 7,190 patients uh, that uh, were in that 30 to 2 CPR arm. But uh, there were additional ex- patients occlu- excluded. Uh, only 1,562 patients had a defibrillator um, that uh, had uh, that was other than the LifePak 12 and LifePak 15 by Physio Striker. Uh, so those were excluded. And then on top of that, 1,117 recordings were unavailable. So the bioimpedance recordings or just recordings in general were unavailable. That got them down to 4,511 patients that had uh, the LifePak 12, LifePak 15, or the MRX applied during CPR, and there was a recording available. From those uh, patients, there was an additional uh, group that was that two groups that were excluded. That was 1,070 patients received continuous chest compressions, or they did not have obvious 30 to 2 CPR. So that's important because for the arm, 
uh, to, because the study criteria includes ventilations from a 30 to 2 pa CPR pattern, uh, they, they don't want to have that gray area data, so they excluded that. that. And then 1,122 patients just used defibrillators uh, that did not have a uh, impedance signal. So uh, obviously, if you don't have the signal, you know you can't use the uh, the data. So that brings us down to 2,319 patients who received 30 to 2 CPR that was verified, and then they finally have a final exclusion that was 3,000. Uh, excuse me, 343 patients that had less than two minutes of recorded CPR. So of course. You know, you, you need to have a critical mass of data. If you have less than two minutes, that uh, is their threshold for removing uh, folks. So that brings us down to 1,976 patients that they uh, that uh, make up the cohort, the group of patients that they were able to analyze the data for. I just want to pause here real quick. Um, that is a way less number than that initial 30 to two arm. And it's it was very interesting to me to see why they excluded so many patients. And I think that's that's really uh, important to understand that uh, those, uh, look at the reasons that they removed them. Uh, they did not have a recorded impedance signal. They did not have a, a clear idea of whether compressions were continuous or 30 to two. Uh, that's important because that kind of speaks to what Josh was saying earlier, that our individual clinical practice oftentimes has larger effects that we may never see. So um, that was just interesting to me. Josh, I didn't know if you had any comments on that. Uh, not so far. Uh, I just found the uh, PDF as well and I'm looking at it concurrently. Uh, so at the moment, no. Cool. Uh, cool. This next part, though, I, I think I will have some comments because it's a little interesting. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, kind of. So, we went from the methods section, right? So, we're actually we're still in the methods section, but we're going we're going from the patient population section, so the inclusion uh, criteria, to uh, their methodology for the waveform analysis. Uh, and what was they mentioned that previous studies showed that uh, greater than 250 cc's is a reasonable minimum tidal volume that can result in gas exchange. Uh, so that means that we're pushing through all that uh, anatomical dead space, right? Uh, all the, the everything from your mouth to uh, anything but the alveoli, right? The gas exchange services. Uh, oh, and they actually go into that, right? And they so uh, overcome anatomical and physiological dead space and produce clinical, uh, clinically meaningful gas exchange. So uh, having oxygen go uh, into the blood, right? You remove uh, CO2. There, when I was talking about that concurrent bioimpedance waveform, uh, they said that a amplitude threshold greater than or equal to half an ohm uh, corresponds to greater than or equal to 250 cc's of tidal volume. That, and they have already verified from previous work done by other people that that is a good surrogate for um, gas exchange. Excuse me, not gas exchange for air movement for tidal volume. So uh, that's important because you can't really use a, you have to verify a tool uh, before using it to make clinical decisions, right? So that's good that they've already done that or someone has already done that. And the, uh, in building the study, uh, they are, there are, are certain outcomes that they are looking for. So the primary outcome 
was uh, uh, survival to hospital discharge. So out of hospital cardiac arrest to hospital discharge. Secondary outcomes were uh, ROSC at any time during the arrest, pre-hospital ROSC, ROSC on arrival at the emergency department, survival to hospital admission, so from the emergency department to the hospital, and then uh, finally, uh, a, a favorable neurological uh, outcome, so a modified ranking score greater than or equal to three at hospital discharge. So, uh, Josh, jump in here whenever you wanted to. Uh, I know you said you had something. So to... uh, the yeah. the way they're analyzed is interesting. Um, so for for those that might not know, um, there is a way that, and it's a very, um, it's not, you can't look at the entire arrest, but you can see the bioimpedance threshold or see a, a thoracic impedance uh, from your life back 15. Um, you will only see it during shocks delivered, uh, and you will only see, I do not believe it's on the printout, but it is in your electric, electronic report when you import your defibrillations. It'll show your uh, thoracic impedance. Um, for example, uh, I just had to do a, uh, not had to, but did a grand rounds on a cardiac arrest that had vector change and traditional placement pads, and the vector change had a lower impedance threshold. Um, it's interesting that they're able to detect that a half an ohm on this equals 250 or more of air. Uh, I didn't know that one, it constantly measured this, um, the, the life pack or the MRX. I have very little experience in the MRX. Personally. Yeah, me too. Um, I don't, I don't. I trialed one a long, long, long ago at a volunteer agency. That was about it. Um, and, uh, it's just like. I didn't know it was constantly monitoring things. It would be, I think, interesting if we could see a real world or real time representation of this to see our effectiveness of our ventilations. Yeah. Not just chest rise and fall. Cause I mean, like, yeah, and we're going to talk about this here shortly, I'm sure. Um, when you've got a Lucas going or you've got manual compressions going, um, it's even with an advanced airway placed, you're, have going to have a difficult time really assessing rise and fall of the chest as you're ventilating. Uh, all you're going to get, you know, luckily with the advanced waveform, once again, we're going to talk about it in a second. End title is going to give us a great waveform for it. Uh, so we're going to see that. But outside of that, it would be great to see this even in our ventil our BVM ventilations and uh, maybe help us drive that change that is going to come here in this talk of are we bagging during compression breaks or are we bagging during compressions yeah dude great point man i i uh i what's interesting to me and i was hesitant on the although they you know i just said that they have validated uh you know there's validated work that's shown that this method is good uh that the uh impedance uh, by impedance change is uh a direct correlation to the amount of air being moved uh, so they state here, our ventilation detection me method has a sensitivity of greater than 90% and a positive predictive value of greater than 90% compared with capnography. That was, that's like pretty bold. And they have three citations. So, I mean, I think it would be interesting for us and then also our listeners to go look at those citations, 18 through 20 at the end of the paper to see what methodology was used to validate this, um, this uh, relationship. What was also interesting to me is, um, I know we're going a little bit into the weeds here, but 
uh, they they said that for the waveform analysis, the ventilation waveform analysis and the bioimpedance analysis, they developed a computer so- software that incorporated the criteria for bioimpedance, so the stuff from the 18 to 20 uh, references, right? So uh, reference 18, 19, and 20. And then they that program automatically identified the ventilation waveform from the defibrillator recording. So I just found that interesting that they they wrote a program for that, and I would be interested in seeing what the validation uh, requirements were for that program. Uh, again, I know we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but uh, it's just interesting. And um, yeah, so uh, where were we? We already talked about outcomes. So it's important. Uh, we won't dive too deep uh, into the statistics, although that's like what I kind of yeah never mind oh we won't go go into that but um it's important to see the cohorts uh that uh, they split the patients into so the or i guess i should say the groups uh patients with at least one lung inflation waveform in less than 50 percent of chest compression pauses were group one so what does that mean that means that there were uh, from all the compression pauses if there was a validated ventilation in less than half of them, that was group one. The second group was if there was a validated ventilation, right? And remember, they're validating the ventilation with the bioimpedance score, right? Or the bioimpedance reading. If there was a validated ventilation in greater than or equal to 50% of chest compression pauses, that was group two. This is absolutely critical to understanding the results of the paper. So if there, uh, you know, if there's any issues or anything, you know, reread the paper, feel free to email us at adminalertmedical.com. We're, we're happy to try to explain it a little bit better. But Josh, I don't know if you had a better way of explaining than I did, like what those groups are, because I think it, it, it definitely matters when we talk about the results. No, no. Uh, honestly, uh, as you're reading them, it's helped me understand them more. I'll be honest, uh, reading research papers and like, deep diving the numbers and stuff has been difficult for me in the past. It's something I've never been good at. Uh, I'm good at historical research, but medical research and science research, a little bit hard for me to grasp, but that helps me understand it better too. Good, good. And and honestly, man, like I'll be, this is something I'm learning to do. Like for the folks that don't know, I'm in a graduate program for epidemiology and preventative medicine. So I'm, I'm directly applying the stuff that I get to learn every day that I, I have the opportunity to learn. So I certainly could be incorrect. So for the listeners, uh, that have a greater understanding of the methodologies here or, or anything, really, if there there is feedback, uh, I guess I should just pause and say that. Please send us that email uh, or, you know, comment on our stuff because we, uh, you know, we certainly don't know what we don't know. But all right, let's get back to the um, the analysis. Uh, so the first thing they did is just basic descriptive analysis, um, excuse me, descriptive statistics. That's just a, uh, uh, a term to sh- kind of say what the, various descriptors are of the patients that were studied. Uh, that's a standard thing that people do, right? Uh, when we're, we're analyzing uh, any sort of data set. Um, they looked at things like initial cardiac rhythm, chest compression rate and fraction over the first six minutes of CPR, ventilation quality metrics, uh, pre-hospital, all the things that we talked about in terms of the various stages of ROSC and if, if they occurred or not. Uh, they, uh, we won't go into the 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 deeper stats here but uh what's interesting is the on top of the work that we just described 
they uh, they determine dose response relationships um, between the number of ventilations per pause and each of those outcomes that we described previously. So what does that mean? The, from the way I like to think about it is I'm sure everyone has heard the dose makes the poison, right? Or like, I believe that's a saying, but basically the amount of a drug you give or the amount of any intervention you give is what makes it a good thing or a bad thing. Give too much of any drug and you're, you may hurt somebody, give too little, you might not get the, uh, the exact effect, but you give it just in the right range and you hopefully get the ther- therapeutic uh, response that you want. Uh, so that's what a dose response relationship is. So, uh, I just thought that was, uh, interesting. Uh, let's go on to the results section unless Josh, you had any comments, questions. I'm good. All right, cool. So, um, and folks, I know we're going a little bit quick here. Uh, like I said before, you know, make sure you comment on our posts or send us an email or anything. We're we're happy to help as much as we can. And, uh, all right, so let's go into the, uh, the results. We already talked about the various reasons patients were excluded, so we won't go into the first part of the results. Let's go into a little bit of the descriptors. So table one. Uh, table one is usually that, uh, that uh, excuse me, that descriptive statistics section. Uh, so the overall mean patient age was 65 years. So mean being a good word for average, right? So the average patient age was 65 years with uh, 66% of the patients being uh, of the male gender. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the mean plus standard, <laughs> we, I don't want to go into the descriptor for that, but basically it was uh, 9.8 minutes uh, was the average time of the 30 to 2 CPR plus or minus 4.9 minutes from the start of compressions until placement of an advanced airway. Uh, why does that matter? Because they're measuring the bioimpedance for uh, the uh, BVM ventilations. And the whole point of this paper is looking at those early BVM ventilations versus those capnography compor- confirmed later advanced airway ventilations. Now, remember we were talking about those two groups, right? So if a validated ventilation was captured in less than 50% of patients, uh, excuse me, less than 50% of pauses, that was group one. Uh, and greater than or equal to 50% of pauses was group two. So most patients, 1,177 or 60%, comprise the group with lung form with lung inflation waveforms in less than 50% of pauses. Let's take a look at that for a second. So most patients received an adequate ventilation according to the study methodology less than 50% of the pauses, right? 799 patients, or 40%, had validated ventilations in greater than or equal to 50% of the pauses. What does that show? That shows that from this cohort, more people did not get validated ventilations that allowed for gas exchange uh, more than 50% of the time, which is kind of concerning to me. Josh, I didn't know if you had any comments on that. No, um, we can comment more on actual practice later, uh, what this really implies. Um, sure. And uh, I think it's, it, it is shocking, um, and it does 
uh, highlight things that we probably didn't pay attention well enough to um, implement correctly. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about it here shortly about you know, like actually implementing what's being found in here and how we can change what we're doing and what's probably going on. Um, system EMS-wide. We'll go with EMS-wide. Sure. Absolutely. Now, there were other things that favored being in group two, uh, which basically means that they're, what they're describing here, they might have been environmental factors, other factors that caused uh, people to be or might have been, con- might have contributed to patients getting more than uh, getting a um, an adequate ventilation more than 50% of the time. Uh, they describe here that uh, public location right? It had one, uh, was one of the factors. The uh, fact that an arrest was witnessed also contributed to a patient being in group two and getting a ventilation, a validated ventilation greater than or equal to 50% of the time. If the patient, uh, if the patient had bystander CPR um, performed on them, then they had a 52.2% chance of being uh, in group two versus group one which was 49.1%. And if they had an initial shockable rhythm, there was a a 29.1% chance um, versus 20.9%. So the, uh, I don't want to go too deep into the, the other like results. I really want to go into the discussion section. Although, I mean, some of the stuff is pretty relevant. I mean, but it's okay. We won't, we won't do that. Um, So, the yeah i don't want to go into the regression stuff because that's a little bit too much into the weeds but um the uh so what was interesting here where's the table for it's okay we we can go into the discussion um so when so we just got done the results section right and now we're in the discussion section so the results are when the study team just kind of flatly puts all the numbers and all of their stuff without any sort of um, analysis, right? Or talking about the analysis. The discussion section is where folks really dive into what the results mean. So this was very, very interesting to me. So the, in terms of, uh, so we already validated that there was a number of, uh, there was a difference in the number of ventilations, right? We talked about that. Um, they also describe here only 40% of the patients received lung inflation more than half of the pauses. We already, uh, described that, described that. They then say this, this suggests overall poor oxygenation and ventilation during initial out of hospital cardiac arrest resuscitation using a BVM device. I wanted to actually, Josh, ask you a question, uh, because I, I just don't know I guess maybe I should, but I don't know. Are folks, I, I, I was under the understanding that, and we should really get, I guess, an opinion from the, the listeners here for like the, a national view, but folks are really going away from the 30 to two and moving towards the high performance continuous compressions. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so uh, for our Maryland listeners, you guys, know, you guys know we've been doing an HPCPR, high performance CPR for quite some time now. Uh, the majority of the past 10 years has been HPCR, HPCPR, mm-hmm. um, which really highlights compressions because we do know that um, if we're not circulating that blood, we're not moving the enzymes around, we're not 
encouraging the possibility of possible ROSC. Uh, the two definitive things in cardiac arrest that are going to drive ROSC are compressions and early defibrillation. Now, there's a lot of studies that show that. Um, but I, you know, and this is definitely going to be, you know, some, some personal experience here, some anecdotal. With going towards the high performance CPR, we are not doing the 30 to 2 anymore. Uh, we are bagging and compressing concurrently or simultaneously. Um, and this paper would, this trial and paper would suggest that that is not encouraging neurointact uh, discharges um, or promoting those. Uh, I my question in this all, and I mean maybe this is a little early asking this of this paper and in in, in overall, is truly what is the difference between pre-advanced airway and post-advanced airway in the um, simultaneous application of compressions and ventilations? Yeah. Why during pre-advanced airway steps? Is it important to do 30 to 2, have that pause in compressions on the chest, movement of the chest to do, deliver two solid ventilations of the right volume over the right amount of time, and then re, resume compressions compared to now we have secured the airway and it's okay to deliver both simultaneously. Um, that may be something maybe I just, maybe that is out there and is being taught by other people. I just have never heard hey, this is why we do this. It's more of, oh, this is in place. Now we switch. And by the way, for you know anyone that's using a Lucas, I don't know about the autopulse. I have not used an autopulse in now 13 plus years. Um, there is a 32 option on the, on the Lucas. There's continuous and there's 32. So this is you know a, a consideration that is taken into or something that's taken into consideration by physio control when they made this device and has kept it all the way into Gen 3. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's that's what I see. I see a lot of simultaneous compression and ventilation with BVM. Um, there's also one other thing in the paper that I noticed reading through is that, uh, let me pull it up so I can quote it correctly. Uh, if I can find it again, it talked about how there is capnography can be used to determine whether ventilation is present. However, capnography is usually measured only after placement of advanced airway, which typically occurs later in the advanced life support stage of CPR. There are no widely available technologies for detecting for detecting ventilations during BVM ventilation, the most crucial initial phase of resuscitation. So, Moose, I don't know about you, but um, we in my agency and I specifically in my uh, care very much push for inline capnography on BVM. So, is that not a good indication of us delivering ventilations? Because I've been taught that if you still get good box form, you're going to get end title back on the patient, that you're still, that is still a viable thing. And that's something out to the listeners, anyone else that sees this, you know, um, whether you get this gets sent to you or whatever it is, um, is it? Because 
There's a lot of people saying that it is, but this is kind of, this paper is kind of uh, insinuating that it isn't, that there is no good, you know, look at ventilations. I've heard people say, well, does it work? Does it not work? So. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. The first thing that comes to my head is um, I wonder if it's not a good thing, if it's considered not a good metric because people aren't applying it correctly or because they're applying it correctly and it's still not a good metric, you know, Um, because I don't know. I've always been told that if you have a good zeal, you're going to get good entitled. I'll be completely honest with you. Um, In the codes that I've ran recently that I'm thinking of, one wasn't really a viable early, you know, I mean, we won't go into the specifics. The, the one that we did have, they we had enough medics to tube early, uh, and it, it was indicated to tube early because of the reason the patient arrested. Um, yeah, I can't say that I, I'm actively putting a BVM on a person uh, with a end title because either I have, you know, I don't know. That would be interesting to look at. And what would be also interesting to see is that looking at the parent study here, that rock triple uh, uh, C paper that we were talking about, um, the I'd be interested to see if they have anything that stratifies before and after advanced airway placement. Um, because I think that would, that would answer that question. Uh, uh, but I think certainly, and we'll get to like the future work section of the paper. I think that's uh Certainly, something that you know someone should look at. Um, in terms of results, I just scrolled up. To, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Did you have something? Well, you you know, you're the self-professed physiology nerd of this group of us. Um, what do you think of the possibility of the differences in negative and positive pressure within the chest happening with the compressions? Like we're you know we we're inducing changes in thoracic pressures by just doing CPR in general, the compressions. And then we're also doing, we're switching a negative pressure environment to a positive pressure environment while concurrently doing outside mechanical movements on that environment. And then once we secure the airway, it is a definitive positive pressure environment that is that has no outlet other yeah. than you know the blow-off valve on the BVM. Yeah, no, uh, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, I there's certainly that variance, and with without having a a closed system from a BVM to the you know through you know past the patient's clotic opening with a confirmed tube that has a good uh, uh, balloon, uh, you have so many variables that are affecting the air moving uh, in and out of the body, right? So uh, you have you know like going back to what Lindsay had said, you know, if you have a one person, um, BVM, uh, technique, you may not be putting in, uh, you're not, we may not have an adequate seal, um, due to compressions, you may not be timing it correctly. If you're doing a continuous compression ratio. Um, I just, from a physiological perspective, I think that there, like I said before, there's so many variables that go into, um, you know, oxygenation. So we talked about briefly last week, I won't bore our uh, patients like I did Dr. Lawner last week, but there's, uh, there's, Me our listeners. Uh, or sorry. Yeah. What did I say? Our patients. Oh yeah. Sorry. <laughs> they might turn hopefully, into patients after listening. Hopefully you guys never end up as our patients. Yeah. I mean, but, there, <laughs> but there's uh there's certain things that, 
the so a gas exchange is not magic, right? There are certain things that go into it. So there's the surface area that the the air has to uh, that the gas has to move through. Uh, that is uh, inversely related to the thickness of the surface area uh, of the excuse me the thickness of the membrane has to pass through. Um, there's a a diffusion coefficient that we don't have to go into, but there's also the differences in the partial pressures, right, of the gases uh, that we're talking about. So there's certain things that, you know, at a uh, 30,000 foot level, what we're talking about, those fine technique changes, uh, you know, going from one person to two person, those are affecting the, the, the total surface area and the thickness and all those things that we're talking about. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I got to stress, folks, this is one paper and this is Josh and I talking. We're certainly not the, the end all be all experts on talking about this. But it seems to me that from this paper and we'll go into the specific results, um, seems like maybe continuous CPR without actually concentrating on good ventilations is a bad idea. <laughs> but I guess we're kind of jumping to the end here. Let me just read through the the results because I, I don't think we ever got to that. I did scroll up to the top just for a more concise summary. Um, so we already talked about how many patients there were and the mean age and all that. Let's get started here. So, um, so group one, we were talking about what group one was. Group one had a medium of a median of 12 pauses and two ventilations per, uh, patient versus group two, which had 12 pauses and 12 ventilations per patient. So remember group one was, uh, they had a validated ventilation in less than 50% of those pauses of the 32 pauses. And, uh, group two had greater than or equal to uh, 50% uh, ventilations during 50% of those pauses. So uh, group two had higher rates of pre-hospital ROSC, 40.7% versus 25.2%. And that p-value was very significant. We won't go into statistically significant stuff right now. Survival to hospital discharge was also better, 13.5% versus 4.1%, also with a uh, reasonable p-value, and survival with a favorable neurological outcome, 10.6% versus 2.4%. These associations persisted after adjustment for confounders. So what are confounders? Confounders are just a general term that throw off the results uh, that make something look like uh, a valid result that isn't, right? So um, the confounders here, uh, and I, I, I'd have to read back into the results section, but the various, uh, like the location issues, stuff like that. So from uh, from my understanding, these associations were persistent, uh, per persistent even after adjusting for those various um, factors. Uh, let's see here. Before we go to the conclusion um, I wanted to go into a few different things. Uh, the, the big one that I wanted to talk about was the limitations uh, that they talk about. I guess we can talk about future work first. So uh, they state, our study reported detailed information regarding ventilation during 30 to 2 CPR for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, including ventilation incidents and frequency and the number, of, number and duration of pauses. Future studies are needed to evaluate these metrics when continuous chest compression CPR is used and effective ventilation metrics on patient survival outcomes during an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. That kind of goes to what you were talking about, Josh. This is especially important because EMS frequently uses continuous chest compression CPR before and after advanced airway placement according to guideline recommendations. This is what we were talking about throughout the, this episode. 
clinical uh, trials are urgently needed comparing ventilation uh, strategies during early CPR and their effects on survival. Exactly what Josh said, uh, you know, uh, earlier. Uh, this is interesting. A portable spirometer has recently been developed that can be used in the EMS out of hospital setting. Any manufacturer has developed a spirometer that can be coupled with its defibrillator. These devices make it possible to obtain more detailed measurements of ventilation uh, metrics that were previously possible than were previously possible during early CPR. Um, Josh, isn't one of your neighboring jurisdictions using one of those? Or am I completely off here? Uh, I don't know. I'd here. Hold on. Let me, you know. Do a little research while we're talking, find out what this thing is. and Yeah, while you do that, let me just talk about the limitations. So, um, limitations that they describe. Uh, the defibrillator files were from two device manufacturers. Several brands of defibrillator either did not record bioimpedance or the recording was of insufficient quality. Why does that matter? That's because that means that they had to exclude those patients. Uh, we excluded patients who were randomly assigned to the 30 to 2 CPR group if they received continuous chest compressions. And the or if the defibrillator could not record the thoracic bioimpedance, of course, that goes back into that inclusion criteria we talked about before. Uh, and another limitation they describe is this study is a secondary observational analysis of data from a clinical trial that addresses a question that was not the purpose of the original trial. So remember, the original trial was that Rock Triple C study. Uh, associations between ventilation and outcomes may not represent causal effects. That is huge, right? So, um, associate, um, what, what's the term? Um, correlation does not necessarily mean causation. That's huge here, right? Uh, given the retrospective and observational study design, we cannot account for residual confounding whereby undetected ventilation may be a marker for some other causal patient of patient or care characteristic responsible for outcome differences. This was huge for me. They are so um, self-critical is not the word. Um, when I'm reading through these limitations, I'm seeing that they were hyper aware of any and all things that could uh, throw off their results and show um, the outcomes that they have here. Um, a uh, some of the, so a high body mass index may affect bioimpedance amplitude inversely and could affect detection of ventilation waveforms. Such patients may be more difficult to ventilate, and the observation of poor initial ventilation and outcome may reflect such factors. Now, in the last section here, they say these limitations should be balanced against the strengths of their study in having drawn data from a high-quality multi-center clinical trial. So what's a multi-center clinical trial? So Josh mentioned the six different hospitals that they were talking about. That's huge. Because if you're only looking at EMS one agencies. center. Go ahead. It was EMS agencies. Not oh, hospital. sorry. Did I say hospital? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, my bad. Um, the When you have a single organization doing something, you it's human nature to have biases and a, 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 a some semblance of, I don't want to say group think. But, uh, you know, uh, whether it's organizational culture or whatever, you're going to have similar mindsets when you're using different systems like six in this uh, in this particular investigation. Um, you are uh, you're accounting for those those biases, right? You're um, accounting for uh, any sort of. Um, I want to say opinion confounders, but you know, any sort of uh, systemic issues within a, that single center that uh, may throw off a single center study. So that's important. Um, 
They say here, and the outcomes of which were adjusted for EMS response interval, quality of CPR, bystander CPR rates, initial cardiac rhythm, and other confounders. So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about, that those results that they had persisted after adjusting for um, the various things that may have helped group two people be in group two or in a, for, for our terms, uh, factors that would have made it easier for EMS to provide ventilations and greater than or equal to 50% of um, ventilation pauses. Uh, does that make sense, Josh, how I said that? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Uh, let's see here. Um, the last thing I want to say, and you know, uh, this really kind of, Josh, this would be, I think it would be cool to do like a research literacy series because uh, I would learn a lot. All right. I, like I said, I, I know, a little bit just to know what I don't know. But um, one of the things that they mentioned here at the end is finally all investigators except the statistician and the database manager. So the person doing the stats, right, and the person managing the data were blinded to survival outcomes and other clinical data during the uh, course of measuring ventilation metrics. That's huge because um, you can have, if you have, if you're not blinded to the data, you can, uh, you can look for the, outcome that you want and that can uh, throw in bias uh, that will uh, you know throw off the entire paper so that blinding is a huge tool a really good tool in assessing data and research in general and it's good that they blinded their investigators here Uh Uh, um, before i go into conclusions i just wanted to josh um, you got anything anything i i know you were looking uh, stuff up uh well one i couldn't find the spirometer i'll say that um they might have it in like a supplemental thing here but i don't know I wasn't. There's not. It's not referenced, okay. unfortunately. Um, I wonder if it's because it's a commercial device they can't do it. Eh, it's all a chance of that. Um. So, uh, most I have honestly from this is what we can take away into our clinical practice and why these things make sense. So. Uh, I don't know if we want to get into that or if you just want to tie up the paper and then. Yeah, let me tie up the paper if you don't mind. And then we'll, we'll go okay. into the discussion. That way I can stop sharing this and we can uh, uh, just talk face to face. So uh, just a conclusion section. It says this novel multicenter study demonstrates that lung inflation occurs infrequently with BVM ventilation during 32 CPR for cardiac at a hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, I mean, I think we can all, I'm sure we can agree to that. You know, I'm sure that happens, especially when we're looking at a, the, uh, you know, the totality of systems. Uh, they finally say ventilation with measurable lung inflation in greater than or equal to 50% of pauses was associated with significantly increased rates of ROSC, survival, and increased likelihood of favorable neurological outcome, which is huge. Um, and it really kind of makes me question everything we're doing with continuous CPR without an advanced airway. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll hand it off to you, Josh. Uh, so, okay. We're not, I just want to put this out there. We're not putting down continuous CPR. We're not putting down high performance CPR. High performance CPR has been definitively shown to encourage and promote neurological outcomes. ROSC, it all goes up when we really, truly like, you know, put some uh, emphasis on the compressions. Uh, anyone that's been to a resuscitation academy, if you haven't, try and find it. I know they're not too common. Unfortunately, it's usually limited to larger agencies that put them on. But 
you can still reach out to the one in Seattle and they will tell you how to put on a resuscitation academy. They will send you the resources and they'll, you know, do what they can to. Maybe we should take one on the road. Um, That would be cool. (laughs) But, um, so continue to ensure good compressions first and foremost, uh, because if we don't have the compressions, this next part that we're going to add in that we should probably hit on second and focus on a little bit more now that we've gotten the compressions down, the compressions without the compressions, the next part doesn't matter. Just write it off. Because if we cannot compress properly, it doesn't matter after that, after that point. So the next piece is how do we ensure that when we're compressing and getting this blood circulating through the body, getting, you know, keeping these cardiac enzymes up. Um, there's a graph out there. If you ever do RA Academy, sorry, resuscitation Academy, they will show you that cardiac enzymes drop off exponentially every minute that compressions are not performed. Um, now we need to add in, let's circulate oxygen. Okay. Cause I think that's the key component here is that we're not delivering sufficient oxygen via the ventilations and that we are relying on the, uh, the adage that, Oh, it's an adult. They have X amount of, um, oxygen left in their body that's why we're focusing on the compressions it'll circulate what is left over until there's nothing left well or or that the negative pressure that we're creating from compressions is somehow sucking in air because i've heard that too yeah and and that harkens back to pre-peter safar days of see how quote-unquote cpr was done in the in the old days (laughs) and we're talking like 40 you know 1950s and before Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so Let's add in now, focus on the compressions. Okay, let's focus on the compressions, but let's switch to 30 and 2 possibly prior to advanced airway implementation. There's going to be pushback on this. I'm sure there's going to be a listener that goes, geez, that's just going to make things even more difficult. And now I have to manage that for counting correctly. And my person that's bagging is... You know, delivering those ventilations after the 30. Oh, now you guys are saying, hey, make sure it's two-person bagging, this, that. Hey, all these things are going to drive your positive outcomes. Okay, mm-hmm. Something else that comes from Resuscitation Academy, and I'm talking about them a lot. Please do go if you ever get a chance. I'll say it again. They want They teach you, not teach you, They from the outset of one of the courses, they tell you, to expect ROSC. Plan for it. And these are things that are going to help us make this happen. So if we're implementing these measures, it helps us plan for a ROSC to happen. It's not what we expected, you know, when I first got into EMS in 2007, where it was like, well, you know, the ROSC was like the surprise. It was like, oh, wow, man, this is happening. And now, I mean, in my practice, it's gotten to the point of, hey, there's a rhythm change. Okay, cool. Let's, rock. Let's change gears. Let's change, you know, now we can flow into another algorithm, not like, oh my God, like high fives, fist bumps, you know, all around the room. No, it's, this is, this is normal. Let's roll with it. Okay. Not for and... me. Not for me. I'm still happy when I get Roski in me. I'm like, oh shit, I didn't, I didn't expect to get, get this far. Yeah. So yeah, no, I'm but, kidding. Yeah, go ahead. You know, Let's implement these BVM ventilations. And you know, once again, this is one paper. A week from now, there could be a contradicting paper that says, you know, hey, um, we actually analyzed and, you know, it's it's just, the, it's the same as after advanced airway. 
whatever it is, you know, these ha things happen all the time. Uh, there's two studies out there, airway and heart, that imply that, hey, maybe we should look at um, blind insert insertion airway devices, superglottic airways, you know, uh, instead of ET tube. Well, a couple years later, there's a study that says, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead and do that, but your neurological outcomes are going to be decreased. You'll get ROSC, but you won't have neurological outcomes. You know, stuff like that. And so just take this stuff with a grain of salt. Uh, the paper straight up says we need more clinical trials to definitively get an answer on this. Um, there's a lot of areas that are not answered. There's questions that are left from this paper, which is good. There should always be questions. There should always be something that's like, hey, what about this? Because it keeps us driving towards finding the right answers and not being complacent and sitting with one answer, one paper. Um, so take it from us. Uh, take it with a grain of salt, whatever you want. Um, I would encourage you guys to look at your ventilations being delivered during compressions. Um, yeah. I think on my next rest, I might, you know, if, as long as I can think about what we talked about today, and even as the creator of the, you know, one of the creators of this episode, I'll have to think about it and I'll have to actively practice to do this. This is not going to be second nature to be like, Hey, we're going to do 30 and two. So I'm going to get a little couple looks for my uh, shift mates, but, gonna give it a shot you know yeah. so something and to I, think about and i mean what i uh you know what i would say is uh, i'm not sure i would change anything what you're doing right now i think that the opportunity here is to like interface with your ems leadership and medical directors to like take a look at this because i feel like it, it may not necessarily have to be a dichotomy right because um right now especially if you're doing high performance cpr continuous compressions um well certainly this is not medical advice or anything like that so follow your local protocols duh but i wonder if we would see changes for example if we were to use like a cpap mask and good uh you know uh, uh manipulate jaw manipulation right so that way we could ensure good seal placement just as an example i yeah, wonder about that during uh, the last episode yeah uh, that's something that we have in our back pocket at work um just and sometimes it's device dependent. Yeah. All, all should have the ability to detach whatever CPAP component and be used as a regular mask because, uh, you know, say your CPAP patient goes unconscious and goes into respiratory arrest. Uh, well, you don't want to have to go through unsnapping, mm -hmm. uns unsecuring the mask. You can just pop off something and go for it. I wonder if we could create a hybrid high performance 30 to 2. You know, where we take the pit crew mentality and the expectation of ROSC to a 30 to 2 methodology, right? I wonder if that's an option um, where, you know, that we, we really hone down the 30 to 2 and we have good two-person bag valve ventilations and we have good uh, bioimpedance like capture and we have all these things and we have this active feedback system that allows us to measure how well we are performing ventilations. You know, that I wonder that if that could be an option. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think at the very least folks, this is that you should, um, have a conversation. We'll post the paper. I'm assuming Josh, right. With the thing. So I would take this paper. It's a recent paper in a valid journal, right. With, uh, and it's a multi-center, um, uh, uh, analysis, right? Or investigation. I would 
I would take that paper, especially if you're like a line paramedic, line EMT, and sit down with your medical director, sit down with your EMS chief or whoever, whoever, whatever your leadership structure is, and be like, hey, can we read this paper together? What are your thoughts on this? What, uh, uh, from a system perspective, if you're like a, you know, if you're if you're part of a regional leadership or state leadership, take a look, you know, take take it to the group. Um, I imagine there's like across the country, there's a ton of different ways to do this, right? But you know, there might be certain places where a system approach is um, better, and you'll get better results than if you go at it from an individual jurisdiction. So, at the very least, I think this paper is a uh, good conversation starter. I would caution any sort of actual practice change that deviates from your protocol. Uh, and as always, follow your, you know, your local protocol and your jurisdictional policies when performing, when functioning as an EMS clinician. Uh, 100%. Um, yeah, this is just this is something to get the conversation going. Um, uh, is that everything else we want to talk about? That one thing I'll bring I up? I think, yeah, I think. The, uh, what is about to go, I think, flying around the Twitter webs, X webs, social media webs, whatever. Um, so I'll share my screen real quick. Maybe this can so, be next week's episode. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't know where to find the exact results of this. These are all screenshots of a presentation um, that talks about a particular proto particular protocol that Salt Lake City Fire has been doing um, since 2019. So I'm pretty sure since 2019. Yep. Yeah. So for four years now, uh, they have been giving five milligrams IM epi at the beginning of their cardiac arrest. Um, and this is because... They were seeing a delay in how long it took to get the IVRIO access until the first epi. Um, so they give the five milligrams epi, and then they give concurrent IVIO doses throughout the arrest. Um, so once again, just some screenshots. Um, the study was determined if the rapid initial dose of IM epi followed by standard IVIO epi during at a hospital cardiac arrest is associated with improved survival to hospital discharge. I don't know if you can see that too well, but okay. So in your IM epi patients, there was 305 since 2019 that received this. Uh, and I don't know when this study ended. It doesn't say, but 305. Of those, there was 33 that had a survival to hospital discharge. It doesn't talk about neurointact outcomes. I understand that. I actually know it does. Good neurological outcomes at discharge. So of those 33, 28 of them had good outcomes. Uh, the numbers, 5.9% uh, of those that only received IVIO epi were neurointact and then 9.2% of the IM epi. So it does show some positive outcomes. It shows some, like, maybe this actually works. Uh, I This is the first I've heard of this. It was shared on TikTok, actually, by uh, Shade Tree Cardiology. That's where I found it from, uh, as well as a coworker that sent it to me. So this might be something we're seeing make its way around. Did you? Um, did, is there an actual paper associated with this? 
I haven't been able to find it. It does. I mean, there is an AHA logo in the right hand corner. So, <sighs> yeah, I, I'd be hesitant. Well, I mean, and I mean, and, and I know you you agree with me on this. So the. It, I would hope that there is an associated paper with this that's peer reviewed. Cause what I'm seeing is a single center, right? So Salt Lake city, yep. non-blinded uh, because uh, I imagine, uh, well, I guess I can't prove that it's not blinded, but I'm seeing a single center non-blinded uh, with, uh, at, what was the numbers uh, of patients? Uh, 305 within the IM epi group, 970 within the IVIO epi group. Okay, so like, uh, just my gut is telling me that I'm not seeing. I, I don't know what their uh, if their um, cohort is has statistically uh, significant or adequate. Uh, if if it's adequately powered, meaning that there are enough patients to make a make a statement of uh, uh, you know that there is a valid change. I'm mm-hmm. also uh, you know what I mean. Like I don't know if that's enough patients to say right. Yeah. Um, I'm not seeing any sort of so. And again, I'm not trying to jump on you, Josh. I'm just, I'm just I'm just trying to say why there is a need. This is a great. I'm really glad you brought this up because it looks really cool. Um, I just wonder. I hope they're publishing on this. And as you were talking, I actually looked up this person's contact information. I don't know if I found the right person. Uh. But if I did, I would love to reach out to them and be like, hey, come on the show and talk about your stuff. Um, maybe we can try and work on that. Um, yeah. It, this is Salt Lake City EMS, correct? Uh, Salt Lake City Fire and Tinius, Paltinus. Oh, interesting. Hold on. Out. So I just found uh, an abstract. Uh, accelerated intramuscular epinephrine and survival in adult non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a before-after study by Helen Palat. Pal- Palatinus, Michael Johnson, Henry it. Wang, and Scott T. Yinquist. Wasn't Henry Wang on the paper we just talked yes. about too? No, no. Uh, well, he might have been, but uh, I'm pretty sure Henry Wang was also on Park or Airways. Okay. Um, um, he was in a recent Airways study of sorts. Okay. Uh, hey, could you? Uh, I'm gonna sh- just because we're talking about this. Let me share my screen real quick because. Um, Go ahead. Um, I know we're way over the hour, guys. Uh, I, I, I just... Oh, no, hold on. Let me go share. So uh, this is basically what it... Were, I think this is what they're talking about, right? Because it was a symposium abstract. Um, so let's see here. Uh, we conducted a before-after analysis of the implementation of the IM Epi EMS protocol. I wonder what prompted them to do that. We included adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest treated by the Salt Lake City Fire Department. Interventions were pre-IM epi, yeah, January 2010 to 2019, standard care IV or IO epinephrine post-IM epi 2019 to 2023, single dose of 5 milligram IM epi prior to the initiation of IV IO access, all other care followed. Oh, so they give additional IM epi, additional epi on top of the IM epi. Yeah, yeah. so that's what it said, standard IV IO dosing after that. Among 1,283 out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, 307, which were 23.9%, received IM epi, and 976 received usual care. Group had similar sex, witness arrest, arrest location, initial regimen response time, but younger age, 57.3 versus 59.5, uh, with a p-value of 0.05%. I mean, that's okay. And higher bystander CPR, 68.3 versus 56, which with a p-value 0.01, 0.001 in the IM epi group. Time to epinephrine administration was faster for the IM epi group, uh, 12 uh, versus 15.3 minutes. 
uh, IM Epi was associated with improved hospital outcome, uh, hospital survival, 1.8 adjusted uh, odds ratio of 1.87, 95% carnival, uh, confidence interval. I don't want to go into odds ratios right now. And good neurological outcome at discharge, adjusted um, odds ratio. Yeah, we should maybe we can talk about odds rate odds ratios next week. That'll be a good topic to jump into when we talk. We should talk. We should dive deeper into this, Josh, and we should uh, talk about this next next week. So this will be a good primer for next week's episode. IMEPI first was not associated with differential rates of ROSC. Uh, when compared to standard IVIO uh, first administration, and then finally uh, conclusion in this before and after analysis, IMEPI was associated with increased survival to hospital discharge and favorable neurological function compared to standard care IV and epinephrine. Yeah, see, and even they say prospective, prospective meaning forward-looking instead of retrospective, looking at past results. Prospective randomized trials are needed to determine whether the observed effects of IMEPI and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest improves outcomes. That's dude. This is really cool, man. Yeah, I think this would be really good to talk about next week. Um, oh, I'll, I'll probably be able to get this at work, but I bet there's a paywall. Oh no! Look at this. It's just the. Oh, okay, it's all good. Let me stop sharing first. Okay, well that's that'll give us a topic going forward in the future, either next week or another episode, depending on how things go. Yeah. But, uh any Anything last else? thoughts, Josh? I mean, that you want to give. I mean, maybe I can give my last thoughts, and then you can give your last thoughts, and then we, you can close us out. Sure. Uh, honestly, big take-home point. I guess ventilations matter in cardiac arrest. Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, honestly, guys. I mean, from a clinical standpoint, I, I think we I've already beat um, a lot of this down already. I I just want to stress: talk to your folks, talk to your leadership, get the conversation started. If like. All of our listeners, I mean, we, you know, we're so grateful to everyone that listens to us. We've had an obvious increase in listenership and we were so appreciative of the support you all give us. If I think if even a small group of us got together and talked to our leadership about this, we can make some significant change. Um, I think uh, Josh would agree. Our, our North Star here is two things, uh, the patients that we all care for and the folks that take care of those patients next to us, right? So uh, if we can have some sort of positive outcome here, we're, we're, we're doing our jobs here at Alert Medical One. So thank you for your support in that. Um, Josh, I'll hand it off to you. Um, just echoing what you said, Moose, uh, honestly. And then make sure we still do the basics right. Don't let this change things up too much. Um, don't rush to airway. You know, we can still manage at a basic level very well. Um, don't rush through the steps. Make sure you properly prepare yourself. And then take that advanced airway when the time is right. Um, and have these conversations. This is, you know, for those that, especially those that work in an EMS only agency where EMS is the talk of the table, regardless, um, other than, you know, hobbies or whatever you did, you know, with your family on vacation, yada, yada, yada. Um, tabletop talk with this man. Talk with your fellow providers, talk with EMTs, talk to your medical directors, your EMS officers. Um, regardless of where you work, I'm not just saying EMS only can only have this conversation. Um, I know maybe frowned upon in fire-based systems, uh, but have this conversation, make sure what works best and follow the evidence, pay attention to this, pay attention to following trials that come out. I would bet because this just came out, uh, you might see this in social media here real soon. People talking about 
we need to change something else with our airway management. So, uh, if you don't have anything else, Moose. Okay, well, to everyone, um, thank you for listening. Uh, thanks for listening to us ramble about research for an hour and 15 minutes. Um, hopefully this becomes somewhat of a normal thing for us to do. Talk about some papers that are coming out. Talk about some, you know, maybe controversial big things. Who knows? But uh, good evening. Good morning. Good night. I know it's out of order, but there it is. Uh, thank you for listening. Follow us if you aren't already on our social media. Uh, and we got some pretty cool collaborations uh, via episodes coming in the future. Uh, pay attention. Uh, some great information come down the pipeline. But regardless, have a good night, good morning, good evening, whatever it is, whenever you listen. Be safe. And see you guys.